This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome back to Science with Dr. Carl. Does your brain ever try to remind you of that stupid thing you said six years ago? Can we train our brains to forget things that have happened? Plus, why do some people float in water and others sink? And if it's raining outside, will you get wetter if you walk or run through it? I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Dr. Carl joins you right now. Carl, how are you this week? Ever so peachy keen, although we are in lockdown in Sydney. And I do feel sorry for the people who are actually out of a job and don't have any income, and especially people who have to self-isolate. I really think that what we should do for the people who have to self-isolate is we say, okay, you have to self-isolate, here's some money, here's some food, we'll organise deliveries, and then that way we'll we'll take care of them. Mm. You know, we're not, we're just saying go home, and uh, sure, if you've got a bit of dough, you can order takeaway, but if you if you don't make any income, there's some people hand to mouth, We've got to take care of everybody in our society. That's it. You can check out all these discussions and what's happening re-COVID and lockdowns via ABC News, but also via the Triple J Hack podcast. Right now, we're about to jump into the world of science. So get your questions coming through. 0439757555. Carl, should we kick this off? To the audience. We've got Jack here from Kayama. Jack, what's your question? Hey, morning, doctors. Hey. Um, my question Dr. for you guys is, um, is it possible for like humans or people to forget memories or things they hear, um, like just the way we try and remember things? Is it possible to just forget like mundane information that we might hear? You mean For to example, like, you know, forget? embarrassing memories or something like that? You can work on it, um, but it's hard. Um, there's... A method in psychology, there's several. One of them is called cognitive behavioural therapy and that can kind of condition you into things. And I'm kind of thinking off the top of my head that trying to deliberately forget stuff is harder. Um, in the case of my mother who went through the concentration camps, the way that she went got around it was she just lied to me. Mm. She lied to me about her name, her age, her religion, where she was born and that was her method with coping without any psychological help. So I would definitely go for some psychological help. Are there any people you know, Dr Lucy, who can sort of help along this pathway? I'm not sure if I know any, but I think, you know, what you've just said there is like people that do definitely do that avoidance thing, you know, and and, and avoid kind of or almost replicate a different version of themselves. Like your mother, I've seen different documentaries that you've done about that, Carl, and it's quite heartbreaking. But Jack, I'm wondering... Is there a particular memory or something that you would like to forget? Oh, not really. It sort of came came about by having a discussion with someone who kind of gave the gave away the plot to like a movie, oh. and I was thinking, oh. yeah, yeah, and I was like thinking, it would it be possible to try and forget that discussion so then I, it doesn't like ruin the movie or the TV show or whatever it was. No, um, for some people, hypnosis can work, and you might be lucky enough that you can have that happen. So via your GP, check out a hypnotist. And in, in my case, um, Adam Spencer and I tried to get hypnotised. We just don't get hypnotised easily. But we did find someone and we hypnotised a medical doctor that she would send me a postcard every single day and she would justify it. She'd say, oh, I think I'd better go for a walk. This is for our TV show, Sleep Geeks. I'll go for a walk. Oh, while I'm going out, look, I think I'd just drop into the post office. Oh, look, I may as well buy a postcard and, and send one to Carl. And then the next day she'd come up with another excuse why she had to send me a postcard. So 
for some people, hypnosis does work, so try that one. It must be a damn good movie. Yeah, what movie is it, Jack? I can't remember. I think, yeah, it was something. It was <laughs> mum. She told me told me something. I was like, oh, you're just giving it away. <laughs> and then I was like, I, w- I want to forget this conversation, but I don't know how, really. Jack, someone's saying something similar. Natalie, I would love to forget my favourite books just so I can read them again for the very first yeah. time. Too true. I, you know, I would like to forget some memories that my brain decides to bring up during my quieter moments. Lauren from Tralgan, you got a question about cooking pasta or rice. What's going on? Yeah, I do. So mum taught me a while ago that when you're cooking pasta or rice, you balance a wooden spoon over the top of the saucepan and it never boils over. Even if you've got it on the highest heat, it doesn't boil over. Um, and I just wonder why. Um, let me take a guess. I'm reckoning that the uh, surface of the wooden spoon is a bit furry and bits of the furry stuff fall off and then um, act as nucleation centres to make the water bubble at the surface and not keep on bubbling over. I got nothing. What do you got, Lucy? Mm, I'm not sure, but Lauren, I think I've seen this done before and you've made me want to try it now myself. So you just put it in the centre? Yeah, so you just put it in the centre, like over the top. You balance it over the top yep. of it. So you just sit it across the top of the, the open saucepan. Hmm. And you can have it on the highest heat. It never boils over. I've had it on half heat before and things boil over. And, yeah, it, it's magic. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Why. And have you tried the difference between taking off the wooden spoon and then putting it back on yeah, and yeah. it has? It boils over. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Potatoes that work too, apparently. Oh, God. Yeah. I want someone to, if you've done this before, text in 0439 757 and maybe we can get to the bottom of it. We've got Will here from Central New South Wales. Will, question about hydrogen. Yeah, so my question is, if we're making hydrogen from seawater uh, to make green hydrogen, is that going to affect sea levels? Um, no, in the sense that when you burn the hydrogen you make the water back again. So you'll be returning the water into the, and here's a fancy word, hydrosphere, which means how the water moves around the planet. So you might be sucking out the water, say, at Wollongong, and if you're on the west coast of Australia, uh, away from the east coast, you'll be returning the water into the system over into the Indian Ocean, but eventually it will go around. Whereas with carbon dioxide, we're getting fossil fuels that have been buried for hundreds of millions of years and we're introducing the carbon dioxide into the system and it doesn't leave the system anywhere as quickly as uh, the water does. So it will level out there. And in fact, the ocean level is rising by, I think, about nine microns every day. So I, I think that's just due to global warming. So I don't think you'd influence it more than just the ocean level rise that we're doing due to global warming anyway. Thanks, okay. Will. We've got you, wooden Will. spoon chat going off on 0439757555. Someone's saying the wooden spoon pops the buzzballs as they rise. Martini said the spoon reduces the temp when the liquid touches it. I want to know what is going on. Malcolm, you said it's a surface tension issue. The spoon bursts the bubbles. Carl, what do you think about that? Um, uh, There's so much going on. I'm trying to work out what's going on and I don't know. So you suppose you've got something like milk, right? And the milk will boil over and froth and go really messy. And you're saying if you put a spoon across the top, not touching the top of the milk... It won't boil over. See, the thing or is, I don't is know. It pa- no, it was pasta. It was yeah, pasta. Right. I don't think. I don't know if it's milk, but I think it's just water, and you're cooking. Yeah, like a pasta or a rice or something like that. Potentially potatoes as well. Kirsty in Brisbane, you said I use the spoon trick all the time to stop it boiling over. I need to go home and try this immediately. We've got Joel from Oak Park. Joel, what's your question? Hi. Um, 
long time listener. <laughs> um, my question was, um, how come we um, don't see more COVID-19 infections coming through our mail and if I should keep washing and wiping down my international mail or mail from exposure sites? Mm. Ah, there are some diseases that travel through the air and others that transfer via surfaces and others that are very fragile and die very rapidly. In the case of COVID-19, you're looking at somewhere between uh, three days and eight hours for it to survive on a surface. Eight hours if it's on copper, and the copper will inherently kill the virus. When the virus is on, you don't have to add water or anything. It'll actually actively kill it as atoms of copper migrate into the virus and kill it, and then it lasts longer and longer depending on where you're dealing with cardboard or stainless steel about two days or so. So if it's airmail, the airmail's really slow, so by the time it gets here, any COVID-19 viruses, that's the SARS-CoV-2 virus, would have well and truly died. So it seems like surface transmission is minor, air transmission is the major way. Cool. Amazing. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joel. Thank you, Joel. And remember, if you ever have any coronavirus questions and you need them answered day to day, you can do so via Coronacast with Tegan Taylor and Norman Swan. Tegan, we've had on the show before and she's just an expert at this after doing it for over 18 months. So definitely check out Coronacast wherever you get your podcasts. We had Georgia here from Canberra. Georgia, I saw your text come through. You were very enthusiastic about asking this question. Um. Yeah, I heard from a friend... Um, this little thing, he had sent me this TikTok and now my mind's like blown and I'm very confused. So I, I would love to hear from Dr. Carl what the answer is. Yeah, what's going on? Okay, so my friend sent me this TikTok and he was explaining how European um, eels go to the Bermuda Triangle and breed. I Like, this is definitely... a very strong conspiracy theory, but, like, just to explain a bit about it. Okay, let's look at the Australian example first. So the eels in Australia, when they get to a certain age, maybe between 5 and 50 years, will then go somewhere to have sex. And they will travel down rivers and even slither across water or sort of wet grass at night and make their way down the ocean. Then... If they're on the east coast of Australia, they'll chuck a lefty and go to a point that's roughly between New Guinea, um, Cairns and what's the islands, the French islands just off the coast. There's some French islands just off the coast of Australia. Anyway, those islands. So it's up on the top right-hand corner of Australia in the ocean and they will go there and they will have their babies. And then the babies are little tiny transparent things with not much muscle. Oh, by the way, on the way up, they basically uh, are doing a death run. By the time they arrive, all they've got is a skeleton and a little tiny bit of muscle because it's all been wasted um, and skin and reproductive organs. And then they love each other very much. They have the babies and the babies drift down on the East Coast current because they're very weak, and then they get stronger as they come down, and then they migrate their way, and we think, back to the same river or stream that they came from. So that's the Australian experience. With regard to um, Europe and America, they all head into roughly the Bermuda Triangle, make babies, and then come back again. Now, uh, there's a little bit of background here. The Pacific Ocean is pretty well a permanent ocean there for billions of years. The Indian, the uh, sorry, the Atlantic Ocean, with um, Europe on one side and America on the other. The Atlantic Ocean, and of course Africa, is kind of like a winking eye that opens and closes every half billion years or so. And we think that that was, they all went to a certain place, which is the Bermuda Triangle, and then they come back. So that is true. The eels do that, and we still don't understand fully how they know where to come back to. 
Georgia, did this send you down a bit of a Bermuda Triangle path? Um, wow, okay. Wait, say that again, sorry? Did this send you down a Bermuda Triangle conspiracy theory path? Yes, it did. And, <laughs> wow, I'm very, that's amazing. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you like Georgia, maybe you've seen a TikTok and it's just blown your mind. You've had a conversation with a friend and you want to put it to Dr. Carl, let us know. 0439 757 Jake in Randwick, he said the bubbles, re the, the pasta, the wooden spoon gate. He said the bubbles need to reach a certain height above the rim of the pot before it will spill over. The wooden spoon balanced across the rim, pops the bubbles before they can rise high enough to go over the edge. I think that's our answer. I've got to try. Like, I have trouble with rice boiling over every now and then mm. and I'm going to try it scientifically and I'm going to make a mess and I will video it as well I was and see say, what I can find. Video it. You've got to video it. Yeah. Yep. And someone else, when I pour a fizzy drink and it starts to froth up, I put my finger in the froth and it prevents the froth from building up and dissipates it quite quickly. You said, I wonder if it's the same thing with the rice boiling trick. Very wow. potentially. <laughs> Now I've got Andy here from Newcastle. Dr Andy, what's your question? Hello, hello team. Uh, I'm just curious, when we start to uh, travel to Mars, how long can you stay on Mars and come back to Earth and live a healthy, happy life? Can you come back? Um, Possibly not. When people go into space where the gravity, effective gravity, is zero, um, they find they get osteoporosis in one week at the rate that their grandmothers get in a whole year. Bad things happen mm. in zero gravity to the human body and it doesn't like it. But what happens on Mars where the gravity is, say, roughly half, I forget what it is, but less, you'll find other effects going on. So you're going to find changes that will make it really hard for them to come back. When the astronauts come mm. back from space and they've been in there for, up, up there for the best part of a year, basically they can't walk. Even though they train out every day, they can't walk and they have to sort of pick them up they, and put them in a wheelchair or a wheelbarrow and they sort of lie in a banana chair and they can gradually get their strength back. So you've got the changes that will happen as a result of lower gravity plus the fact that they're going to be weaker than they need to be here on Earth because you're always working against gravity. And then there's another effect mm. that when they come back, time will have moved on with regard to the evolution of bacteria and viruses and they won't be immune to those but maybe they can stay in orbit uh, around the earth and get a bunch of vaccinations against what's going on. Is that the kind of thing you're thinking of? Absolutely, yeah. So it's a one-way trip. Kind of. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would I'm you do it, Andy? That. Would you do it? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like where I'm at, but um, <laughs> it's, it, <laughs> it's interesting. Like the Elon Musk is talking about trying to send 100,000 people there over whatever it is, the next 50 years. And I'm just curious, could any of them come back? But mm. sounds like a, that's a no. Well, Andy, you're in Newey. You're in God's country. So that's that's all you that's need. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'll stay here. Thank you. Thanks we got, for the answer. Thank you. we got Logan here from St Andrews. Dr Logan, what's your question for Dr Hi. Carl? Hi. Um, why do trampolines, um, you go high on a trampoline when it's wet um, and when it's dry, you, go, um, you don't go as high? Okay, now is this based on your personal experience, Dr Logan? Yes. And do you wear those special socks with the little bumpy sticky things on the bottom so you don't slip over? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, but on a wet trampoline, you don't wear those socks, so you're not slipping. And you're telling me that when the how does a trampoline get wet? Is it because it's outdoors and it got rained on, um, or something? Yeah, because it's outdoors, it gets rained on. 
Okay, so then you shake off all the water. So it's basically being wet, but uh, but there's no puddles of water in it. Is that right? Uh, yeah, there's no, like, there's no puddles of water. It's just wet. Okay. Um, and then when you jump up and down on it, you say you can jump higher? Like h- how much higher would it be? Like like 1% or 10% or uh, twice as high, 100%? Uh, at least another Ten milli, I mean, millicentimeters. Centimeters. Ah, centimeters. Okay. Um, I'm guessing that the rain um, is permeating the rubber, mm-hmm. so it's not a perfectly impervious surface like glass. It actually yeah. Im- is, is impregnating the the molecules of water are going into the molecules that make up the rubber, and they're doing something. And I'm guessing that's pulling the rubber tighter together. That's increasing the tension. That's my guess. Now, now what's the magic number that people who are trampoline experts can ring us on to help us out on this one, Dr. Lucy? One three hundred o triple five three sixty. I wonder if it's loosening it up a little bit. Hey, Logan, do you ever play that game, Crack the Egg, on the trampoline? Yes. Yeah, it's not the best. What's is that? It? Oh, it's you. Crack the egg. You've got to um, <laughs> you've got to be an egg. So you've got to wrap your arms and your legs all together and basically be in an egg formation. And then whoever's with you jumps on the trampoline and they have to try and crack you open. So they've got to jump around you quickly. So then you um, lose control of your body and then they crack the egg. It's not fun being the egg in that game, though. It's not fun. <laughs> Logan, we'll find out if we've got an answer for you, but yeah, I think you're onto you. something there, Carl. We've got Jasmine here from Yanjin. Jasmine, we were talking boiling water before. You've got another question. Yeah, I was wondering how hot water creates steam even before it's reached boiling point. Like, for example, when you're in the shower, if you're doing washing up, there's still steam everywhere, even though it's less than 100 degrees. Mm. Okay, so it's not actually steam. It's water at a temperature of, say, 90 degrees or 80 degrees cooling down. If it's in the shower, it's water that's at a temperature of, say, 42 degrees cooling down to the local temperature of 40, or, or sorry, the local air temperature of 20. So it's coming out at 42 degrees, air temperature is 20 so it's coming out and and you're forming these little tiny droplets in the air so you are seeing droplets you're not seeing steam think about a kettle and you've got a narrow mouth and you've got on the stove and um you begin to see little tiny droplets in the air um when it's boiling but if you look carefully you'll see there's a little gap where there's nothing and that's the steam so the steam is at 101 point yeah, 101 degrees centigrade, and that's invisible. And then as it cools down to 99, the droplets coalesce, the molecules coalesce to form droplets, and you can see the droplets. So if you can see it, it's not steam because steam is an invisible gas like carbon dioxide and oxygen. Yeah, so it's like a water so vapour. Yeah, you're seeing, yeah, you're seeing molecules yeah. joined together in, t- in, in tiny little droplets. Okay. <laughs> We've got Cameron here from Ghana country in Adelaide. Cameron, what's your question? Morning, doctors. Um, given that there was an ice age twelve or so thousand years ago, and humans weren't impacting the environment then, what are your thoughts on humans are only accelerating a natural phenomenon, whether Earth heats and cools? Ah, okay. So um, this is called the Milankovitch cycles. Have you heard about them? Yeah, it's like a sine wave of how the Earth heats and cools. Yeah. So uh, the the Milankovitch cycles describe um, how come the Earth has been having going into an outside out of ice ages over the last three million years. And the three factors involved are, firstly, that the orbit of the Earth changes from 100,000 years being... Sorry, 
over a 100,000-year cycle, sorry, the Earth's orbit changes from being circular to elliptical and then back again. So that's 100,000 years from circular to circular with an elliptical in between. And in between, you get a, a different amount of heat landing on the Earth. The second cycle is that the tilt of the Earth, which is around 23.5 degrees, um, actually varies between 21.5 and 24.5 on a 42,000-year cycle. And then thirdly, if you look at the equator, the equator, sorry, not the equator, the, the north-south pole axis, if you look at that north-south pole axis, it slowly sweeps out a giant circle like a spinning top on a 23,000-year cycle. And they explain how come we've got the ice ages. And what happens is that you have an ice age for 100,000 years and then you've got that period of about 18,000 years when you come out of the ice age. And what was happening over the last 5,000 years is that the Earth's temperature has been cooling down and we were heading into another ice age. And then we reversed that with the global warming. So the natural cycle that was going to happen was that we were cooling down. So go to Wikipedia and look up the hockey stick graph um, and that's by Michael Mann, the hockey stick graph. And there's two bits. One is the actual physics and the science of the hockey stick graph, which says quite clearly we're cooling down and uh, we were going to be cooling down and with carbon dioxide and other gases, we heated up the Earth's atmosphere. And the other one is the hockey stick graph legal. And that's where the fossil fuel companies spend billions of dollars trying to deny the science. Um, happy reading there. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff I've given you as homework. I'm sorry... Dr. Graham. Cameron, you got oh, a sorry, reading Cameron, list. Cameron. Sorry, Cameron. <laughs> That's so good. Gives me something to do in lockdown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tom in Sydney putting a question to Dr. Carl. Tom, what do you want to know? Tom. Hello. Um, my question was just um, when I was in a meat at and I dropped some meat on my skin, it seemed to burn like crazy. But when I swallow the meat, it doesn't seem to burn the inside of my body. Just wondering what's going on there. So meat ah. pie, it hits the skin. God, that hurts. And then mm. you're able to eat it. Why doesn't it burn your esophagus, yeah. Dr. Carl? Well, you don't have temperature sensors all the way along in your gut and also it's cooled down. So it's really surprising that you can have some really hot uh, porridge, which I had the other day, and you try having a whole mouthful of it and, gee, it's hot, so you put it back and then you blow on it and then you wait for a bit and then suddenly in that 30 seconds with you blowing on it, it's cooled down enough. So in the same way it cools down as it goes down your gut. Now, I don't know at what stage you lose pain sensors, whether you have pain sensors, say, all the way down your esophagus or just part of the way down. I'm guessing that you probably don't have any at all. So you can have quite nasty things happening to your esophagus and you only know about it because of structures around it being influenced or you're unable to swallow. So I'm guessing you don't have the temperature sensors going down into your gut. I'll have to check this out. That's my guess. My dad always says that a kid, you know a kid's party pie, the small ones? Yeah. It's the the closest thing to a domestic thermonuclear reaction in your mouth. Wow. So hot. Just so so hot. And it's even worse when it's a kid's party pie because you're usually standing with it at a gathering and you just have to exist through it, you know. You can't spit it out. You've just got to deal with it. And the pastry is cooler on the outside and the meat on the inside is kind of watery, so that stores a lot of heat as compared to the pastry. Mm. Right, small nuke. It's a lot small nuke. We've got Tony here from Melbourne. Tony, what do you want to know this morning? 
Hey, Carl. Uh, I just wanted to know, what's the end game with uh, hydrocarbons? Do, do they all end up as diamonds eventually, or um, is it dependent on how deep in the ground they are? Um, you get uh, fish in the ocean turning into oil, and you can only get oil at a time when the earth has uh, ice at the poles. And that's been the case for the last 40 million years. Um, with regard to coal being formed, what you needed was way back then, uh, about 300 million years ago, that there weren't huge amounts of creatures like bacteria and termites that could eat the wood. So the wood got, um, felt, got made, you know, grew, and then it fell over. And then it didn't decay very quickly and got buried in vast quantities rather than being recycled into the carbon cycle. Now, with regard to diamonds, it's a whole different thing. So um, when they went over to South Africa and started digging around, they found this kimberlite named after the Kimberley Mountains and it was maybe half a kilometre across and really deep and it seems as though there's what they call a pipe, a kimberlite that goes down into the ground a long way, many kilometres, hundreds of kilometres and so the diamonds are formed down there under once again different conditions. So you've got different conditions for forming oil because you need um, ice caps at the North and South Poles and uh, coal where you want a lack of critters that will eat the wood and then diamond is formed by a third and quite different pathway. And it turns out finally yet another form of carbon called buckyballs, which are like soccer balls in shape, remarkably similar, and they form once again under different conditions. Even when you burn a candle, you can find buckyballs in the air if you go looking hard enough. Does that kind of get you – is that kind of the answer you wanted? Yeah, no, well, uh, that clears it up. But I, could I add that um, the question before about uh, the, the steam? Um, yeah, please. Appearing. Okay, well, as far as I know, sorry, as far as I understand, um, water starts to evaporate uh, from 4 degrees C uh, and uh, 100 degrees C is only the, the temperature at which it can't uh, exist as water anymore at um, sea level. That's right. You're talking about the um, fact that when uh, the water is at a temperature, say, 20 degrees C, and it's just lying in a little pond in your backyard, you know, on a plate or something, nevertheless it evaporates even though at no time has that water ever got to 100 degrees C. But the temperature of water and other substances is equal to, in some way by a formula, the speed of the molecules. So if you're looking at yes. water at 20 degrees C, most of them are moving at around a speed equivalent to 20 degrees C and some of them are moving at a speed equivalent to just above zero and a very, very small number are moving at a speed equivalent to 100 degrees C and if they happen to be at the surface, they'll escape. And then suddenly you've lost a molecule of water and the temperature has dropped a little bit gets heated up by the ambient to 120 degrees C and the process keeps on repeating. So you can actually have evaporation at temperatures below 100 degrees C because a small number of the molecules are actually always at around 100 degrees C. Oh, that's exactly what I was uh, thinking of but not in the same words. Thank you. <laughs> that's Thank you. why it's Dr Carl. we got May here from Caves Beach. Maya, what's your question? Hi, Dr Carl. I was wondering why water is clear. Um, it is and it isn't. So if you look into a glass of water, it's quite clear. But if you're swimming in the ocean or in a pool with your mates and you look across, 
and it's just, say, seawater, um, you can see that there's a distinct sort of bluish coloration. And if you happen to dive straight down to a bit of free diving, um, you'll notice that you begin to lose the red colours and so the red gets absorbed first. So water is not perfectly clear and it tends to absorb the red colours and turn the red light into heat so only the blue light can go through. You can see a similar thing happening with glass. And so may, is it May or Maya? Maya. Maya? It's Maya. Yeah. Maya, Maya, sorry. Maya, thank you. So next time you happen to see somebody, some um, tradies, putting in a glass window into a shop or even into a house, uh, ask if you can have a look. And then firstly, just look you know, the normal way through the glass, which is through a millimetre or three millimetres of glass. It looks perfectly clear. And then go to the side of the glass and look along the length of it one metre, two metres, and you'll see it's got a distinctly greenish tinge and that's usually due to iron and if you want to pay more and have it really, really clear, you can pay more and the way they normally do it is not by removing the iron but adding another colour which gives a bit of red and blue and so overall that balances out to be neutral even though the light intensity is a bit down. But if you want to pay lots of money, you can have glass that is free of iron and the clearest glass of all is the glass used in optic fibres and that can transmit light for hundreds of kilometres without significantly dropping in intensity. We've got Reid here from Wodonga. Reid, you've got another water question. I do. Thanks for taking the question, guys. Um, I was wondering, every time I hop into the pool, or it can be salty or not salty water, I tend to sink. I can't float on my back. But my partner, my wife, she can float on her back all day long. She can read a book floating on her back. And oh, my gosh. <gasps> That's yeah. crazy. And then my father's the same as me. He, he'll he sink as well. He's a pretty bad swimmer. And then a lot of other people I know, it seems to vary. Some people will sink and some will, will be able to float. I was just wondering whether there's any science behind that. There is, and I'm a sinker myself, and uh, I finally got the answer from Murray Rose, the Olympic swimmer. I ran into him and I said, mate, you're an Olympic swimmer, um, how can I avoid sinking? And he says, ah, so I, I stole the answer from him. Now, by the way, when you float vertically in the water, do you sink or does the water level come like to your chin or your mouth or your nose or your eyes? Uh, it'll it'll go above my head, so just I don't go. I might not go all the way to the bottom like a like a hammer dropping in a pool, but I'll it'll definitely go. I'll, I'll sink above my head. Really? So above your head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you've got an overall density greater than one. Now that's unusual because most humans have got a density less than one, and in most humans, if you're floating vertically, the water level comes somewhere between, you know, your chin and above your eyes. Now, in my case... Maybe I just freak out. <laughs> maybe, okay. Maybe that can it be... does float around there. Okay. Yeah. So, now this is the trick, right? So, it's where the mass is distributed. So, you and I have the same problem, I'm guessing, which is that you float on your back and then your feet begin to sink, and next thing you know, you're torpedoing going down, whereas behind, beside you, somebody is reading a book on their back and it's, it's wrong. So here's the That's trick. That's exactly right. Yeah. So here's the trick. You've got to shift your centre of gravity towards your head. Forget this luxurious stretching out your legs as far as they can. No. Bend your uh, legs at your knees and maybe even your hips and try and bring your legs back as far as you can towards your head. You want to shift as much mass upwards towards your head as you can. And then secondly, with your hands and your arms, instead of just having them on your chest reading a book like your lucky friends can do, instead, have your arms above your head. 
And under that rather uncomfortable position, you'll find, in my case, that I can actually float while I've got my legs curled as much as I can and my arms above my head. But then if I try to read a book, mate, I just go into the sinking mode. Mm. I, th- I think this is unfair. <laughs> I'm going to write a letter yeah. to the editor or whoever made the universe and complain. Yeah, I find yeah, I always want to splay out, but I find that I dip in the middle and I ah. just don't like the water going in my ears. That's also true. So I bought those special little earplugs because one thing that does happen to many people in Australia because we spend, compared to other people, so much time in the water mm. is we have little bones growing from the side in our ear canal. Instead of having a smooth tube, when you look down, it's all bumpy and this can lead to problems later on. It's called surfer's ear. So uh, I've bought for the entire family little earplugs that have got little ribs on them and all that sort of stuff and you've got a little thing around your neck so that you won't lose them and I go swimming with them and I've got a bit of a bump on the side, the so-called surfer's ear. So this is a public service announcement. Protect your ears, Australians, because you spend more time in the water than most other people on earth. Very true. We've got Sally here from Melbourne. Sally, question about rain yes so uh, on a rainy day uh, assuming the rain is falling consistently are you going to get wetter if you run 100 meters or walk 100 meters Ah, luckily for you, the experiment has been done by two American meteorologists who worried about this a lot and were luckily of the same size and weight. And so after arguing backwards and forwards, because on one hand, if you're running, you're spending less time in the rain. But on the other hand, you might run into drops that you would have otherwise missed. They actually did the experiment. They went and bought cheap clothes of exactly the same size, um, underpants, shorts and a (laughs) T-shirt. And then... They stripped down when it was raining and then put on plastic garbage bags. So they punched a hole for their head and their arms and their legs. And the purpose of the plastic bag was that none of the water would go onto their skin. Mm. And then... They put on the undies and the shorts and the T-shirt and they then in the same rain patterns of mild, medium and heavy, they practised either walking or running in the rain. And the bottom line is this. If you run in the rain, you will get 10% less wet, but your chances of injury are much increased. So you <laughs> so, so balance it up there, Sally. 10% less wet or injury, pick one, your call. Wait, so sorry, running or walking? R- running. Running makes you 10% less wet mm-hmm. because they weigh the clothes before and after and the plastic bag stopped the water going on their skin. So running makes you 10% less wet but a higher risk of slipping in the rain and falling yeah. over. I mean, you watch the movies and people get thrown through buildings with no injuries. Trust me, it's not like that. It ain't like that. Thanks, Sally. <laughs> Brendan here from Brisbane. Brendan, have you been doing a little bit of self-care? <laughs> hey, doctors. Uh, Dr. Yeah, Brendan. I guess you could call it that. What's going on? Um, What's your science question? Yeah, so I was having a nice, lovely bubble bath the other day. Love. Uh, and I was wondering, do all the bubbles help keep the uh, the heat of the water in for longer? Yes. they. I'm guessing here that they would act as an insulating layer. So what you've got is liquid, air, liquid. So that's one bubble. And then the air, the heat travels fairly quickly through either the air or the liquid. But when you've got that mix with little gaps in between, it acts as an insulating layer and will tend to trap the heat. Now, obviously, the question is you want to test this. Um, so you, I don't know how you test because what you could do is force all the bubbles to one end of the bath, but then the temperature of the water would equilibrate fairly quickly from currents. 
you just have to have two baths, I think. You just have to, you know, night after night, test it out, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, and then measure it over a period of time, trying to hope that the night air is the same temperature mm. and the water coming in is the same temperature. And remember, the difference between science and screwing around is writing it down and you might get a Triple J fun pack if you're lucky. So many variables. Brendan, I love it. Keep it up. We've got Matthew here from Nidri. Matthew, you've got a question, yeah, about, I guess, bumps and knocks, but what do you want to know? Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, why do small bumps and knocks hurt more when it's a uh, cold temperature rather than uh, a normal or hot temperature? Or why are we more sensitive to pain mm, when it's cold? cold? Firstly, that's definitely real. If you go walking in the cold weather, uh, bumps hurt more on your feet. One theory, there's a bunch of theories, and we don't have a good answer to this. So one theory is that in the colder climate, uh, organs just and the ligaments shrink a little bit, putting a little bit of extra pressure on things. Secondly, um, it's thought that pain makes your body more sensitive. So you're feeling, once you've got the first bump, you're then sort of amplifying that pain back again. So you, you're feeling the pain more strongly. Um, there's another reason they, they think of it. You can tell that these theories are fairly crappy, that your veins constrict and less blood flows to your extremities. And so your skin is more rigid than normal and that can put more pressure on your already sensitive nerves. So there's a bunch of theories and we don't really have a good answer, mate. We just simply don't. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Oh, sorry, not theories, because the word theory means a full and complete answer. There's a bunch of conjectures mm. or hypotheses. Oh, look at you go. We've got Brent oh, yeah. here from Newcastle. Dr. Brent, what's your question? Yeah, good day, Dr. Carl, Dr. L. Um, I was listening to the boys on Drive, Hobber and Hing the other day, and um, they posed that, you know, by next year we might have uh, an Omega variant of COVID that does good things. Now, it's just a joke, but it got me wondering, you know, are there any viruses that actually have beneficial effects to people? Yes, it turns out that 8% of your DNA is viruses and that without them, there'd be no such things as human babies. One such virus called HERV-K, H-E-R-V hyphen K, I don't know how I got that name, it jumped into our DNA about 30 million years ago and it, it acts to protect human embryos from other viruses. And when the fertilised egg gets to the eight cell stage, this virus sitting inside our DNA gets activated and it pushes those eight little cells into not just making more cells, but making proteins that f- protect the potential baby from infection. And there's another wow. virus that jumped in that um, ha- it keeps the placenta going. And that virus jumped in once again millions of years ago, ended up inside the DNA and turned into two permanent genes. Look them up on Wikipedia. Syncytin, S-Y-N-C-Y-T-I-N, syncytin 1 and 2. And they make proteins that are essential to building the placental membrane that sticks to the inside of the uterus. Right, so basically viruses are kind of contributing to us evolving. Yeah, there's good and there's bad, mm. difficult situation. We've got Dave here from Torquay. Dave, you're the last question. What do you want to know? Oh, okay, doctors, how are you going? Um, yeah, I was just wondering if, uh, if humans got swiped out from planet Earth um, and monkeys and apes uh, managed to survive, do you reckon that they would evolve or could they evolve back into humans over millions of years again? Sure. So we were like the chimpanzees until about two million years ago and then we had two mutations, which was that we lost our body hair 
and the protein then went into our brain and at the same time we had a mutation to our hips so that we could start walking and we now had enough brain to control our thumb and forefinger so that we could start making yep. very delicate tools. So it's not impossible. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. Thanks, doctors. Thanks, Dave. Last question of the day. And Shana from Melbourne's texted in saying, can confirm that when I run baths for my daughter, they stay hotter for much longer with bubbles. I have a thermometer in the bath for the duration and bubbles help keep the temperature stable for longer. I think this is our sign, Dr. Carl. You know, if you haven't had a bath in a while, let her rip. Get the bubble yeah. bath out. That was a lovely phrase you used earlier on. A bit of self-help and a bit of self-love and self-care. That's it, self-care. Dr. Carl, we'll catch you next week. Peachy Keen, catch you then. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Science with Dr. Carl. Make sure you subscribe to see the first to know when a new episode drops. I'm Lucy Smith. We'll catch you next week.